Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2? As we continue our study through this, this book, this uh, scary but uh, truthful book of what is going to happen in our world at some point. Last week we talked about the church in Ephesus. And this was the church that kind of lost their, their love and enthusiasm for God. They were doing things, going through the motions, but they didn't really have that relationship going. And one of the things I mentioned last week is not only is it a church, it could be individuals. The Bible says examine yourself to see where you are. Are you going through the motions? Or do you really have that relationship going? Well, now we're going to talk to the next church. That is the church in Smyrna. And this is the church that was actually suffering persecution for their faith. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. John writes, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write these, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid about what you are to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now you read that, and I'm not sure about you, but I think of Afghanistan right about now when I'm reading that. Because that's kind of what they're suffering right now. Persecution unto death. Now I mentioned earlier that each of these letters, each of these seven letters replies, applies to different churches of, of every area. There are churches like the church in Ephesus. There are churches right now like the church in Smyrna. And I think that's the church right now in Afghanistan. And so I don't think we fall into that category. But should that time come, are you ready for that type of category? This is one of the, one of only two letters, the other one being Philadelphia, that out of all these seven, Jesus didn't have a negative thing to say. The other five, Jesus had to correct them at some point, but this one in Philadelphia, everything was, was encouraging. Now, if we have that map loaded up. You see with the, the, the letters went around in the way the churches were situated. Ephesus was first, then it goes on to Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and all the way down to Laodicea. So that's kind of how the, the reason that the churches were listed this way is because that's how they were located on the route that people took. So Smyrna was a city of, located in the country of what was Greece, about 40 miles north of, of Ephesus. It was an extraordinary large city and beautiful, about 200,000 people who lived there. It was a very wealthy city and well-educated. Now, you know Greece, where they were into the worship of the Greek gods, Zeus, Apollos, all those in fact, this particular church was located between a temple for <clears throat> Cybele, if I have that name right, and a temple for Zeus. So they were like right in the middle of this. And every time I think of that analogy, when I lived in Pittsburgh, my, one of my first jobs when I was, well, first jobs at night when I was in college, I cleaned the U.S. steel building at night, some of the floors. And across from the U.S. steel building, if you've ever been in Pittsburgh, there's all these big structures across from the U.S. steel building. And right in the middle of those is a little one-story brick church. It's like a national historic monument. But I think of all these, you know, 20, 30-story buildings 
right next to this little church. And you imagine how they feel, kind of cramped by these buildings. And that's what I, I picture this church as, one little, one little church surrounded by these huge Roman temples. The neighbors around them were tempers, temples for Apollo and Aphrodite. So they were surrounded by all these temples of idol worship. And Smyrna was a center of emperor worship as well. Now, Romans, you know, they're big into, into emperor worship. And Smyrna, wanting to be like Rome, tried to imitate them. They want to be emperor worship as well. In fact, Rome allowed them to be the center because there was such a rich city, such a well, nice-looking city. They said, fine, you can be the center of idol or emperor worship. In fact, during a 15-year span, emperor worship was mandated under penalty of death. If you didn't worship the emperor, they killed you. And each year, or every year, each person had to burn incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. In other words, you had this bust of Caesar, and they had to come in and burn incense to this god. And after he did that, he would issue them a certificate saying they did it. They worshiped. Sound familiar? It was near the end of these 15 years that the book of Revelation was written. So this church was well aware of the persecution that went on for all those 15 years of, of idol worship. In fact, if you know, does the name Polycarp ring a bell? Anyone? He was burned alive for not denouncing Jesus in Smyrna about 60 years after this letter was written. And his dying words, according to whoever writes these things, he says, 86 years have I served Christ and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So you're getting ready to be burned alive. And you say this. I believe the Holy Spirit gives you that ability at that moment. Because I don't know if I could do that at, right now. Just like when we say about God's word coming back to your mind and scripture. I can never quote scripture off the cuff unless I need it. And then God brings it to my mind. But if I'm trying to remember it, I can't remember it. And I think the same thing happens when you're placed in a persecution or something like this. At this moment when there's no persecution, don't know if we can handle it. But at the moment that it comes, I think God gives you that ability to do it. And this church was experiencing that. How many of us, when we face our troubles, can say that? That Christ has never done me wrong. It's true. And it's easy to focus on our troubles, which the Bible says are momentary and light. And here they are. But imagine being in Afghanistan right now. Do you think your troubles are momentary and light? And, you, and I would think that right now they're saying, Christ has never done me wrong. And I'm willing to die. There was a meme going around a while ago. I told Anna, I'm, I'm going to put this in the bulletin. She says, no, you don't want to put that in the bulletin. And the first says, the church in Afghanistan, we're going to gather today and we're probably going to die. The church in America, we're going to gather today, unless there's something else going on, and I can go to a barbecue or a camp out or anything else, and then maybe I can go to church. 
kind of, right? So he starts out in verse 8. It says, To the angel in the church of Smyrna write this, These are the words of him who was the first and the last who died and came to life again. Again, Jesus starts out with a word of encouragement. How many times do you need encouraging when you're struggling? You need someone just to give you a word of encouragement. But you realize when he get that word of encouragement, it needs to be truthful, a truthful word of encouragement. There's a good friend of ours that we put on the prayer chain. If you're on the prayer chain, uh, a guy, he and I used to pastor together back in Pittsburgh, Peter Conforti, and we left about the same time, and I went to Florida. He went to New York, and which is where he's from. And uh, he has, his daughter and my daughters were friends. Uh, he got, he has pancreatic cancer. And the first word he got was, no problem, it's a small tumor, we can get that out. Second word he got was, metastasized, can't operate, can't do chemo. You need a miracle. He had a little video out, him and his daughter put out, still trusting God, still believing that God's going to heal him. And we're praying for that. But in times like that, you need someone to encourage you. You need someone to really lift you up in prayer and to encourage you. And Jesus is telling this church, you're being persecuted, I get it. But I want you to know that I've already died and I've came back to life again. That's what is waiting you. The new life that's coming after the resurrection. And he's also letting them know that since he's the first and last, in spite of everything that's going on in their life, he is in charge of everything. Nothing happens regardless of what you think is happening. God's still in control. And I'm sure these folks were facing death. They need the reassurance that the Lord is going to be there with them to the very end, whatever that is. And for those who have been with people in hospice at the end of their life, you can tell the difference between someone who knows Christ and someone who doesn't know Christ. Because the people that know Christ have a peace about them. The Holy Spirit is there with them. And we've talked about this before. We talked about heaven. Angels escort them to heaven. They carry them to heaven. That's what you get knowing that Jesus is in control. So their life was, we're going to find out their life was going to end, some of them. And they were going to face severe persecution. But Jesus says, I'm with you through the end. I'm with you until the end of the line. And I'm sure these folks were facing death. They needed the reinsurance. Is Jesus really with me? Jesus is saying, look, I died. I came to life again. That's the cornerstone of your faith. So whether you die at this moment, it doesn't matter because I'm still the resurrection and the life. The Bible says if Jesus didn't rise again, what happened? We're still in our sins and our faith is worthless, basically. The Bible says also if we live for this life only, we're to be pitied more than all men. In other words, if this is all we're going to get, that's pretty sad. Now, we're blessed here, so this is great. But if you're in Afghanistan at this moment, and that's all there is, but Jesus says that's not all there is. The best is coming. It's a little bit of persecution right now, and I know it's difficult. But what we're looking for is what comes after, the, after our death. 
When you do a funeral, and I'm sure some of you have had this experience as well, you need to assure the family that their loved one is in heaven. Difficult to do if you know the person is not a Christian. How do you encourage someone that you know they're not there, but they want to believe that they're there? We pray for people to get saved because there's going to come a point where we all die. And if you die without Christ, you are not going to be in heaven. Verse 9 goes on and says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Kind of an awkward sentence. In Smyrna, they were physically and materially poor because they, ref they were refused jobs. They had no income. They had no food because of their faith. They were being persecuted, so they couldn't get a job. They were shunned. They couldn't get into the union at that particular moment, the guild. And so they were being persecuted physically and materially. They had no source of income. There was no welfare. There was no stimulus check coming their way. They had nothing. And if you look at Laodicea, we'll look at that later on, a very contrasted image to Laodicea. Laodicea thought they, because they were wealthy, because they had everything, they didn't need anything. They thought they were blessed by God because of their material blessing. And how many know the material wealth is no indication of God's favor? Could be but not necessarily. Matthew 19, 16 says, Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which one? The man insisted. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Basically the Ten Commandments. All these I have kept, the young man said, what still do I lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. It wasn't the wealth that kept him out of heaven. It was his reluctance to put God in front of his wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard not impossible, but hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, and again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, how many have heard the story? How many have heard what a, the eye of the needle was? I've heard two interpretations. When I first got saved, I heard the, the eye of the needle was a small gate in the wall of the temple. And you had to get on your knees, or the camel had to get on his knees and crawl through the small gate. After further study, that may be true, but I don't think that's what this verse applies to. <laughs> Jesus was talking about a literal eye of a needle. Now, if you're a seamstress, you know what that is. You ever try to thread a needle? The older you get, the more you can't do it. And he's saying, a camel has to go through that little eye of a needle to get saved which is impossible, right? But what does Jesus say right after that? Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with, with man, this is impossible. 
But with God, all things are possible. It's not saying that rich people or anybody can't be saved. It's saying it's impossible for them to get saved without God. And that's anybody, not just rich people. That's why we pray that God intervenes in their life. We can't save them. It's impossible for them to get saved unless God draws them. And God does the work. Our job is to give them the truth. God's job is to make that truth seal in their life. We can't save anyone. This church can't save anyone. But God can save people through us. So now this church has afflictions, which is also translated persecution, and poverty. And again, the poverty is talking about material wealth, not spiritual wealth, because he ends the sentence by saying, you're rich. Now, it seems mean to say that. But he's talking about richness towards God. Smyrna was a city of great wealth, and yet the church was in material poverty. Why? Because they, ref- they refused to conform to the godless ways. If they refused, the first thing to go was financial support. The Christians became blackballed at work. People in town refused to do business with them. Now, I don't hear a lot of prosperity teaching when they teach on that verse. <laughs> Jesus had no correction for the church, only encouragement, because they were about to face more persecution. How many realize that sometimes serving the Lord entails loss? Economic loss? Maybe family loss? What's the Bible say? Unless you hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. Doesn't mean you physically hate them. It means in comparison to God, your love for God has to be more than your, than your family. And sometimes it costs your family to be a Christian. Serving the Lord sometimes entails loss. Maybe it's economic loss. Maybe you've lost a job because of something that you wouldn't do for your employer that was against what God's word says. Here's another example of faith-filled Christians who are not blessed by God materially. God didn't have any rebuke for them in this, and yet they didn't have anything materially. No prosperity teaching in this town. Verse 9 says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. It was the unbelieving Jews in Smyrna who were inciting the persecution of the church. Jesus says, you know, they claim to be Jews, but they're not really Jews. Who are they? They are, verse 9, they are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus said, if you're not my child, you're a child of the devil. There's no in-between. If you're not a Christian, you are the devil's child. I didn't write it. They claim to be Abraham's descendants, but Abraham's true descendants are those who have their faith in who? The seed of Abraham. Who was that? That was Christ, right? Now, if you're with us on Wednesday night, we've been going through, been teaching about eternal security. How many have heard that term before? Once saved, always saved. All right? We, we believe that there's no such thing as eternal security, but we're teaching why that's out there, and we're trying to show you how what it means. And... The Jews in the Old Testament thought that they were, quote, predestined by God. We're talking about predestination. 
They were predestined by God to be God's children. So it didn't matter what they did. As long as God predestined them, they were always in the covenant. Right? And Jesus says, I gave it to you. You had it, but you lost it. You're no longer into the covenant because you don't do what Abraham said to do. They left God's covenant because they didn't do what God called them to do. That God called them to be live Ten Commandments, obey the law, be witnesses to surrounding communities. They did none of that. And God says, okay, I gave you the covenant, but you left. You left the covenant. So you are no longer a part of the covenant that I issued. There's a condition to them being children of God. They're not Abraham's kids. They think they're Abraham's kids. They think they're predestined. They think they're eternally secure, but they're not. Because they left. They quit doing what God asked them to do. And at that moment, they thought they were speaking and acting for God. And they said, hey, we're Abraham's kids. What are you talking about? Same thing happens today. Many people who claim to be Christians sometimes give us the hardest time. I think I mentioned this before, the new progressive Christian movement. How many have heard of that? Progressive Christianity. These are mostly people probably in their 40s now, maybe younger, who were raised in church but have left the, the conservative branch and have started their own progressive where they don't believe everything in the Bible or they misinterpret th some things in the Bible and they're really critical of people like us who believe that the Bible is true. So we have that going on today. Nothing new. The Bible says nothing new under the sun. It's always been there. And what their biggest complaint is is that we aren't loving enough. Well, in other words, we shouldn't be exclusionary because God's love, right? Well, if you love them, you'll let them do whatever they want to do. How many of you as a parent would love your kids by letting them do whatever they want to do? That usually ends up badly. But God has rules and regulations for our benefit. And if we do those, God says we'll be protected from consequences of sin. Their viewpoint is it doesn't matter what people do. Let them, let them do it. You love them, let them do it. They want to live in sin, let them live in sin. You know, they want to all this other stuff. Here's a quote. I love this quote. It may shock you. God's love doesn't save anybody. You ever heard that? God's love never saved anybody. God loves everybody, but not everybody's saved. What saves someone? Faith and repentance saves them. God loves them, but they have to respond to that love with faith and repentance. Just because God loves you doesn't mean you're saved. You have to respond to that love. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, you repent, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you have faith, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart, faith, that you are made right with God, it's by confessing with your mouth, repentance, that you are saved. So it's not just God loves everybody. God loves everybody, but you have to respond to that in kind.
We saw how the Jews stoned Jesus, or I mean, stoned Stephen. They thought that they were doing God's work. And what's the Bible say that in the end times, people think they're doing a service to God by killing you. The Jews in Smyrna thought that this small church represented the worst type of heresy. But in this statement, we see a well-known truth. The author of all persecution and all affliction is who? The devil. Right? What's the verse say? I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. They're the ones causing all the persecution. The enemy is the one that causes all persecution. But he uses people as weapons, right? The enemy doesn't have a physical form, so he uses people. He's the author of it all. The Bible tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There was a, a thing in the news a while ago about older teenagers getting younger teenagers to do their bidding, bad things. The older teenagers were 18, and they tried to get the 12 and 13 and 14-year-old kids to do the bad stuff because they were minors, and they listened to these older teens. The older teens, they would be kind of out of the loop. They wouldn't get prosecuted as adults because the younger kids did it. And when they found that out, they realized that the younger kids were being manipulated by the older kids. And so they went after the older kids as well. That's what the enemy does. He gets into other people and manipulates them to do things they know they shouldn't do. He gets off scot-free because we blame the people for doing it when he's the one that's pulling the strings in their life to do it. And whenever we face kind of persecution or trouble, we need to remember who's really behind it. Look at the stuff that's going on in the news today. Yeah, you get mad at the people doing it, but we have to remember who's initiating it, who's starting it. So when we pray against these things, we are praying a spiritual battle to stop what the enemy's doing through the people. And the Bible says there's power in prayer. Daniel Daniel was praying for the angel to come and it took him three weeks to get there because he was fighting the enemy. And it took three weeks of spiritual battle for the angel to finally arrive to help Daniel. And he said, hey, man, I was, I was on my way, but I got waylaid for three weeks fighting the angel, fighting the, uh, the enemy. And it was Daniel's three weeks of prayer that allowed that angel to be victorious. There are spiritual battles going on. And we pray and we don't stop praying. That could... We could see a victory in that. There was, there was a series of books out um, years ago called uh, Piercing the Darkness. I don't remember those. It was, it was a fiction book, but it was based, and it, it, and it showed, it, I read both, there's two books, and it was really good. And it really shows you from a, a fictional standpoint what the spiritual battle is going on and how prayer affects a spiritual battle. Again, it's, it's a fictional story, but it's based around biblical truth. If you ever get a chance to read those and you've got nothing else to do for, well, depending on how fast you read. It took me a couple of weeks to do through those books, but my wife could go through them in a the night. But it's really good, and it give you an idea of what spiritual battle is. 
Verse 10 says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. As persecutions and afflictions keep coming, naturally Christians begin to get afraid. And what's fear is growing, right? It's, the verse literally means stop being afraid. Now, it doesn't say stop being afraid because it's going to end. The next verse says stop being afraid. Verse 10b says the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Wow. I'm not sure that's too encouraging. Don't be afraid. The enemy's going to put you in prison. It's going to test your faith. And you're going to suffer persecution for me. What's the Bible say? If you want, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible says. Notice a couple of truths in that statement. He didn't give them any false hopes. He didn't give them a promise of peace and prosperity. He told them the truth. How many like to hear the truth all the time? You want to hear it. You got to hear it, right? Because truth allows you to be prepared for something. I mentioned this a while ago. I, I saw a, an article oh, a while ago. The author of the article had cancer or still has cancer I'm not sure but he says of all the, the suffering and all the ways of death he prefers cancer and I thought that's kind of strange but his point was most other types of death are instant car accident heart attack stroke whatever he says cancer gives you time to prepare it gives you time to say goodbye. It gives you time to do whatever you need to do to put your house in order. And I thought, wow, that's a weird but understandable position. Because you know what's coming. Unless God intervenes, you, you prepare for what's coming. And Jesus is telling them, he's not telling them it's going to be all peace and rainbows and sunshine. He's preparing them for what's coming. And he gives them time to get ready to endure what is coming their way. If he had told them and given them a false hope and a false promise of peace that did not come, what would their thoughts and their faith be like at that point? Jesus, you promised all this stuff and now it's not happening? Well, maybe it's not true. We always need to know the truth, regardless of how unlikable it might be. This church would be in the middle of all this hardship, waiting for this promise of peace, which never comes. And they'd begin to doubt their faith. Well, Jesus, you promised this. It's not happening. Why not? And maybe they would think, it's my sin that's keeping me out. I'm not receiving this promise because maybe my sin's too great. If I'd have been a better Christian, I wouldn't have suffered so much. When it's just the opposite. If they're in prison, and they know that's exactly where God wants them to be, it's, he's able to, they're able to endure that better. When Jesus sent the disciples out in the boat, he says, I'm going to meet you across. And they get out there, storm comes, they're about to drown. At that moment, most Christians would think, whoa, I must have missed that mark. I must be, not be in God's will at this moment. For this storm and me almost drowning, I must not be in God's will. 
But remember, Jesus told them specifically, go across. They were right in the middle of God's will, doing exactly what God told them to do, and yet the storm came up. It's a lot easier to navigate something when you know you're in doing God's will than thinking that you're out of God's will, which means you cause this by yourself. You see the difference? If I'm out of God's will and God needs to chase me to get back in his will, then whatever suffering I'm going through now is because I did it. It's my fault. Whereas God says, no, go out. It's going to be suffering. It's not your fault. It's going to happen. I'm going to be with you through it. Don't blame yourself for what's going to happen. It gives you a lot better encouragement when you go through it because we're quick to blame ourselves for the things we go through and, and sometimes rightfully so but there's a lot of things we suffer that is not our fault but we're yet we're doing exactly what God called us to do a lot of times preachers leave churches at the first sign of trouble that they think well this not, must not be God's will I must not be here and they gotta go someplace else and the same thing happened, they go someplace else. Whereas maybe you're there for that trouble, to help the church navigate through that trouble. And when you come out on the other side, you'll know that I was with you through the trouble. You're there for a purpose. That's what he's telling this church. You're there for a purpose. I wrote in my notes here, if you're terminally ill, wouldn't you rather know it than not know it? than just one day not wake up? Or would you rather know it and be able to plan and do things that you may not have done had you not known it? Jesus is telling them, all this bad stuff's gonna happen. I want you to be ready for it. Don't be surprised, it's not your fault, but I'm gonna be with you through it all. And the second point is, not everyone is going to suffer the same. He says that Satan will put some of you in prison. Not everyone experiences the same trouble in this life. There, there are people who seem to suffer a lot more than anybody else. Jesus doesn't tell them why some of them are going to suffer more. And we don't know why others suffer more than we do or why we suffer more than others. The third point is he does not promise to deliver them from this persecution. Sometimes we're delivered from persecution. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes God answers our prayers by saying no. And it was going to last for 10 days. Now, people are conflicted on what that means. It's either a literal 10 days or a Jewish saying for a short period of time. We don't know which one's true but it's kind of like our life on earth. It's short in comparison to eternity. So whatever we experience here, it's gonna be, if it's 10 days, we can suffer for 10 days and get out. We can suffer for 70 or 80 years and get out and be in eternity. It's what Jesus tells them in the last part of that verse. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Sometimes faithfulness will require our lives as we see right now in Afghanistan and, and things we don't see in the news that happens every day. China, North Korea, 
what they say, Afghanistan was the second worst place to be a Christian other than North Korea. So you know this kind of stuff's happening there. We just don't know about it. And, I, and I've said this before. What we are living in now, the peace that we have in America, is an anomaly to the Christian faith. It's not normal. Normal things for Christian faith has been persecution and suffering throughout history. We have been blessed. We're like in a bubble of blessing, which I think we're kind of chucking right now, but we're in that bubble of blessing. The Bible says, even if there is no persecution, we need to be faithful unto death. And that means the older we get, still got to be faithful. I, I pray that, Lord, I want to end well. It's easy to start well. You jump in, feet first, and you're going. But you want to end well. After however many years being Christian, 70, 80, however long you're a believer, you want to make sure that you're as excited and faith-filled as you were at the beginning, going back to Treffs and Ephesus, so we end well. Be faithful unto death. If that's from old age, we need to be faithful to that point. You know, we talk about retirement and all that stuff. There is no, the word retirement is not in the Bible. How many know that? There's no retirement. There's one retirement plan, and that's when we're gone from here. That's the retirement plan. So that means we're faithful, not until we're 65, and we can just coast. Bible says we're faithful until God calls us home. And if you're martyred, as they were going to be, Jesus himself will give you a crown of life. Imagine that. Jesus walking up to you and giving you a crown. Wow. Not an angel, not Paul, not John, not some great preacher. Jesus walks up, places a crown in your head. Well done. This crown is a, not a symbol of wealth and position. It is a symbol of wealth and position to replace their poverty and a crown of life to replace the life for which they gave for him. Jesus is a just rewarder. Jesus keeps great books. There's a lot of things in the Bible when it talks about rewards that we don't receive here. We receive when we get there. I'm going to I have a quote I was going to read earlier this morning from, yeah. When we were talking about we were going to install the, the staff, I had a bunch of scriptures I was going to read, and of course I forgot them, but I'm going to read now because it deals with all of you who are ministering in God's church. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not, un, not unfair. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and have shown your love for him by caring for other Christians as you still do. God's keeping track. God's keeping good, good notes. When we get to heaven, all the things that we thought nobody recognized and maybe nobody did, God recognizes. All those things that you think that nobody cares, God cares. All those things we talked about earlier, you pick up that piece of garbage in the parking lot because you may, it may affect someone's walk. 
God marks it down. God keeps track. And God will reward you for everything you do for Him. Even if nobody else does. In fact, the Bible says, if you do what you do in order to get a pat on the back, that's all you're going to get. If you do it, and you may get the pat on the back, but if you do it because you want to minister to God or minister to somebody else, that's, God says, I'm going to reward that. And I believe that none of us are going to see all of our rewards here, but we'll receive them in heaven. First Corinthians says we'll receive what we got, what we earned in heaven. And the Bible talks about gold, silver, precious stones. Those are the works that we do for God. We don't care what people think, we do it for God. Then there's the wood, hay, and stubble, the things we do because we like the accolades and we want to get recognized. The Bible says that stuff burns up and you'll get nothing for that kind of stuff. It's the stuff we do for the Lord to honor Him, to serve Him, to help other people. Whether we get recognized or not, that's what God's going to reward. And that's what He's telling this church. I'm going to reward you. It doesn't matter what you experience here. Trust me, I'm going to be the one who puts a crown on your head. You study church history about this time, there were many such persecutions, often resulting in Christians being burned at the stake alive, thrown to lions, tortured and killed in many ways. If you, have, if you don't have a book, uh, the book, Fox's Book on Martyrs, go out and buy that book and read how the first generation Christians died. But you'll also notice that this was the time that the church was the strongest. Persecution always strengthens a church. It may thin it out, but it strengthens it. In the years that followed the persecutions and they ended, what happened? Spiritual increase also changed. In fact, except for the occasional revival, after the persecution started, Constantine came in and made it a Christian nation. And after that, the faith went down because everything was going great. We don't need God for anything. No persecution. Persecution all throughout history has always brought the church together. Hard times always gets people's minds on the Lord. Remember the first Gulf War? Churches were packed for about a month. Second Gulf War, same thing. 9-11, same thing. All of a sudden people want What's God doing? I need God. And then when things calm down, what happens? People go back to their lives. Now we wonder if the churches will grow now because of what's happening in Afghanistan. Not sure. David Jeremiah has a new book out. I'm going to buy when it comes out. It's uh, The Great Falling Away of the Church. It talks about in the last days, is there a great falling away? When push comes to shove, are Christians in America going to stand or are we going to go our own way? I'm curious to take, get his take on that. But I think that's true. I think as things get tougher, the church will get smaller. But those in the church will get stronger. Jesus tells these people they're going to be in prison. Why? 
so they can be tested. Thanks, Lord. One commentary says that this testing will show themselves and their captors where their true loyalty lies. Another one says that they will try, they will try them, but not destroy them, but to improve their patience through faith and courage. You never know what your faith is going to be until you're put in a position to actually operate in faith. If you, know what, if you never have to exercise faith for anything, do you really have it? I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. If we say we have faith all day long, but we've never really faced anything that causes us to put our faith to the test, do we really have it? You get to the end of the month and you have no money and you have yet to write your tithe check. Do you write the tithe check? Or do you let circumstances dictate your faith? Or do you let faith dictate what you do? It's easy to write a check when you have money in the bank. But when you don't see money coming in anywhere, is it easy to write the check? That's the faith that needs to test and that could be anything. In a country where almost everyone claims to be a Christian, I believe that one day God is going to put us to the test to see where our loyalty lies. It's easy to come to church. It doesn't cost you anything. No, no persecution, no, no trouble. What happens when that ends? It's going to tell us where our faith lies. The last verse he says, He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what? What did, what did he just say? He said, He who ever comes will not at, hurt, not at all be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? Revelation 20:14 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If we overcome we will not be cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is not going to hurt you. not going to be there. If you overcome, if you stay with God through the persecution and trials and tribulations and hardship, if you overcome that and you still stick with Him, you're going to make it to heaven. It doesn't say if we overcome, you're going to escape death. It says if we overcome, we escape the second death. We're all still going to die. But that's not the goal. Not to die is not the goal. To be with Christ forever, that's the goal. He said, if you overcome that, you make it through, you're going to be with me in heaven. Now, it's easy to assume from that verse that if you don't make it, you don't come. Again, going back to eternal security and not. The Christians in Smyrna were being persecuted unto death. But the Lord said to them, some of you will suffer great things and some will even die. But there's a more awful death than any of that. And that is separation from God. You are away from God's mercy. You're away from God's grace, his peace, and his love. To be in the lake of fire is to be away from God's presence. People who say they don't want God in their lives are going to one day experience that. Because God says, I'm not going to make you choose. I'm gonna, you choose for yourself. 
If you want to be with me, awesome, be in heaven. If you don't want to be with me, then I'm going to put you in a place where I'm not. I'm not in the lake of fire. So I'm going to put you in a place where you want to be. You want to be in the lake of fire away from me? I'm going to put you there. Everyone's going to experience death, but not everyone is going to experience eternal life. Now, right now, we all benefit from God's mercy, right? Reigns on the just and the unjust. People who don't love God experience blessings in this life. But one day that's going to end. And the second death, it's much worse than the first. You ever burn yourself? I was making French fries in a thing of oil a couple of months ago. And they were frozen, so I threw them in the pot of boiling water, or boiling oil, and with the hot the lid on fast, you know, because it, well, it wasn't fast enough. It, that oil splashed all over my hand. And at first, it was, a, you know, I didn't feel anything. I was like, oh, that stings. And I put it underneath the cold water, and it stung. And we were getting ready to eat dinner, and it was just pounding. And actually, Anna says, you, you got to go to the emergency room. you got to go. And so I, we went, and sure enough, they gauzed it all up and taped it, and it was in immense pain for a couple of days. Imagine that all over your body forever. I, I can't even imagine it. Jameson said to me this, this morning, he said, you know, People think it's science fiction of what's going to happen. But it's not. It's not. And we need to understand that when people who don't know Christ, when we pray, Lord, do whatever you need to do to get them saved. Because whatever that means, whether it's blessing or whether it's hardship, if it gets them to know Christ, it's better than eternity in hell. As you read this verse, how could this apply to me today? I mean, we don't face persecution in this country. None of us face death that way. None of us really face that type of economic catastrophe. What we do face is everyday decisions about things in our life. These believers had to make everyday decisions that would determine how they lived or died. How much are we willing to do for the Lord? The Lord tells us our right decisions here will give us rewards and blessings on the other side. You may not be blessed for doing it right now. In fact, you may lose for doing it right now. But you're not doing it for right now. You're doing it for the blessings you're going to receive in heaven. I wrote down a couple of questions. I'll, oh, man, I'll close. Are we willing to live our lives faithfully for Jesus regardless of our personal cost? It cost the people in Smyrna everything. Are we willing to be just a little more holy for the Lord's sake? The Lord asks us to be faithful, but sometimes being faithful will come at a cost. Are we willing to pay the price with no guarantees of blessings in this life? Even if our obedience gives us nothing here, and maybe it costs us, are you still wanting and willing to do whatever God wants you to do regardless of the cost it is now? That's what the church in Smyrna had to do. They had to realize that it was a cost to being a Christian, but the payment 
for that was much better than whatever they were going through at that moment. Would you stand as we close this morning? Bow your heads for a moment if you would. Some of these things we read in your word, Lord, are really tough for us to take right now. And sometimes if we don't experience it personally, we don't think it happens or it doesn't affect us as much as if it were actually happening to us. But we know there's people right now that are experiencing the same type of persecution. Not only in Afghanistan, but in other countries as well. If you read history, you'll see that millions and millions and millions of people have been killed for their faith. And right now you're asking us to live in this country of blessing and you're not really requiring a whole lot of us in the way of persecution and death. Mostly it's inconvenience. But Father, I want you to fill us with your Holy Spirit so that even in this time of blessing, we don't fall away. We don't slide away like Smyrna did in the years to come. We don't fall away when blessing comes. We want to stay true in spite of the blessing. We want to stay true because of the blessing. And I pray that everything we do in our lives, Lord, would be focused upon honoring you, doing what you've called each one of us to do. And should that time come for us, when we face that type of persecution, that you would give us the strength and spiritual ability to again honor you through it all. Lord, I pray for us as we leave today. I thank you for allowing us to stay a little bit later. I just pray your blessings upon each one as we leave today. Help us to really understand what it means to be a Christian, the suffering that it might entail, the hardships that we may experience here, but as your word says, they're light and they're momentary compared to what is facing us in eternity. And with that in mind, I pray that you would give each one of us a renewed sense of urgency for those who don't know you. Help us to have those appointments, those times where we can talk to people about Christ, our family, our friends, and I pray that their hearts would be open to the truth. We know what's awaiting them, Father, and we don't want them to go through it. And I pray, Father, open up their hearts to the truth. Open up our ability to minister to them. Send other people to them if that's what you need to do if they don't live here. You do what you need to do to bring people to Christ, especially if these are really the last days. We want to do all that we can to win as many as we can for the kingdom of God. And Father, we know that your blessings will follow that automatically. So Father, we commit ourselves as church to you. Use us to the full extent we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Be encouraged. Don't let this discourage you. The Bible says it's not meant to scare us, but prepare us for what's coming. So we want to be prepared.